the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, the tribes of Judah and Simeon continue to conquer evil kings and their lands of inheritance. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 1, verse 6. Once again, that's Judges chapter 1, verse 6. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Now, cutting off the thumbs and the big toe was an ancient practice used to keep your enemy from being able to wage war, but still be your slave. Oftentimes, they would take soldiers, they'd cut off their thumbs, their big toes, and the reason they do that is because with cutting off the thumbs, you could still use oars or other things like working in the yard, but you would not be able to wield a spear or a sword correctly. Without big toes, you couldn't run or balance well, so you wouldn't be able to fight. So this was a common practice when you uh, don't get any ideas with your kids. Um, This is a common practice when you would wage war and defeat an enemy. Israel did not do this, though. So this was not Israel's normal practice because they weren't to make unrepentant idolaters their servants or slaves. So why did they do this to the Lord of lightning? Verse 7, and Adonai Bezek said, three score and ten, which means seventy, seventy kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God has requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Now, not only did this guy defeat other kings, and this is why he called himself the Lord of Lightning. I am the God of gods incarnate because he had defeated 70 other kings and he had captured them, cut off their thumbs and their toes. And the word gathered their meals under my table literally means that they would glean or pick up the scraps that fell underneath his table when he ate. This guy had not only incapacitated his rival kings, he had humiliated them, making sport of their struggle to survive. And he had done that to 70 men, regularly finding his joy and laughter at their suffering. And how he confesses, I'm reaping what I've sown. I did this, and now God has paid me back for it. Listen, Every wrong will eventually be righted. You can count on that. Every wrong will eventually be righted. God is just, even if it seems like evil is getting away with it at the present. I can imagine that there are many 
people who wept and cried over this man's arrogance and his ugliness and his nastiness, his foulness for doing this type of thing to another human being, not just another one, but 70. And I imagine as the people just racked up, the victories kept racking up, some people probably wondered, where is God in all this? Well, he's there and he sees and he eventually brings justice. And so I would say to you tonight, if you're doing something wicked and you think you're getting away with it, you are deceiving yourself. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This guy mocked God. These were men that God had created in his own image that he made sport of. That He got his laughter and joy off their suffering and their struggle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, we see here in Judges that they eventually take him to Jerusalem where he dies. And why do they take him to Jerusalem? Well, again, the city of Bezek was only about, I don't know, maybe about 10 minutes in a run from Jerusalem. So that's probably where they caught him, nearby there. And Jerusalem had already been burned by the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah. We'll see that in verse 8. So it was probably just the closest place that they could deal with him. Verse 8 says, Now the children of Israel had fought against Jerusalem, past tense, and had captured it and smitten it with the edge of the sword, wiped out everybody who remained in it, and they had set the city on fire. So we read about this in Joshua, but he adds uh, in Joshua that the Jebusites weren't wiped out, which is why eventually they come back and Jerusalem is not under the control of, it's actually in the land of Benjamin and why it's not under their control. But at this point, it's just a ruined city that everyone's fled and if anyone stayed, they were killed. But Judah chooses to execute the king here because again, this is likely the place closest to where they caught them, probably camped there for the night and then went back to the war. Verse 9. Israel moves south and west now. It says, And afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain. That would be the central hill region of Judah. And in the south, the word there means south is the Negev, the desert region all the way in the south. And in the valley, and the valley is the coastal plain lands where the Philistines dwelt. So these were areas of pockets of resistance still resided. And so they needed to do that. They start with the central hill country first, verse 10. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was before Kirjath Arba, and they slew Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Now, those were the three giants there. This account was already covered in Joshua, so I'm not going to go in detail to this story because we did cover it in detail when I went through Joshua. But this was the city that was given to Caleb. And so here we get the names of the three giants that Caleb slew that were still living there. Now from there, he, Judah, went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir before was Kirjath Sefer, it just means house of the scribes. And Caleb said, he that smites Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, it says the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So, I mean, that would make him like a nephew. I don't know if he was his actual nephew. The word there 
brother actually just means blood relative. So I don't know if Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother. Kenaz is interesting enough, it's actually a Kenite name. So it's not likely he was his younger brother. He was just some way, he was a, a blood relative. And I already went over why he did this. He wanted his daughter to be married off to a godly man. And so he says, I'll give her to the one that will take this city. He will obey God's command. Verse 13. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him that she moved him, her, her new husband, uh, to ask of her father a field. And so when you know, they're coming there for the big wedding celebration, she gets off her donkey, and Caleb says to her, what is it you want? Because she wanted to ask him something. And she said unto him, well, give me a blessing. And because she had to get permission from her husband to do that, it's just the way the culture was back then. And so she said, give me a blessing, for you have given me a south land, a desert land. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb, who loved his daughter very much, he didn't just give her one spring, he gave her two, the upper springs and the nether springs. And again, we covered this story in Joshua in full, so I'm not going to go into it in detail here. You might be saying, well, why is it almost here again verbatim exactly it was in Joshua? Well, the reason it's mentioned here again is because Othniel will be our first judge. So we need to kind of reintroduce him so we know who he is when he comes onto the scene. So that's why he's mentioned here. Verse 16, we see here that the Kenites also find a home in Judah. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south of Arad. And they went and they dwelt among the people. So the Kenite were the descendants of Jethro's people. Jethro, of course, being Moses' father-in-law. And when Moses came to Mount Sinai, Jethro came out to meet him so he could see his grandkids, his daughter, and saw all the wonderful things that God was doing, gave Moses some really good advice. And when it was time for Israel to move, Moses told his, dad, his father-in-law, he said, listen, Dad, he goes, why don't you come with us? There's going to be plenty of land. God's blessing is going to be upon us. Why don't you come with us? And Jethro said, no. And they're Midianites, so they traveled. The Kenites were Midianites. They traveled around. They're Bedouins. They didn't have like a specific home. And so at first he said no, but eventually he gave in and went with the nation of Israel. And so here we see that they settled down here in the land of Judah. It says they left the city of the palm trees. That's Jericho. Apparently they were, when everybody got in their land, they'd kind of hung out near Gilgal, the initial camp of the Israelites. But now they eventually move and they take land that Judah offers them in the south of Arad. And they dwelt there. That's where they lived. I love this because it shows again that God didn't hate non-Jews. God didn't hate the Canaanites and he doesn't hate any other people. But God does hate evil. Look at Proverbs 6 with me real quick. Verses 16 and 17. Proverbs 6.16 says, and it's in poetic form, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. It's not like Psalm was going, God hates six things. Wait a second. No, he hates seven. It's poetic. And so he says, these six things the Lord hates, yea, even seven are an abomination to him. And then it starts off with what? What's the very first thing that's mentioned? I mean, you can think of all the things that God could hate, but what's the very first thing that's mentioned here? A proud look. The phrase in the Hebrew literally means an exalted eye. It refers to someone who sees themselves as not needing the Lord or his ways. They see themselves in a way that they think they're okay on their own. So they don't need God and they don't need his ways. Now it's fascinating why God hates this so much. Isn't that what 
cost mankind the garden? You don't need God. You can be your own God. That's what cost mankind the garden. And it's what keeps a person from God to this very day. I'll be my own God. You know, I at least have respect for the people who admit that. Uh, well, I'm not opposed to God. You know, I just, I just don't, I don't think I need to, you know, ascribe to any religion. Okay, well, you, so you're saying you're your own God. Well, no, I would never think that. Okay, but you're saying the reason you've made this choice is because you think you don't need to do something. So if you're leaning on your own understanding alone, you're saying that you have enough information to make a decision like that. You don't need superior information from anyone else. So you are exalting yourself in your own eyes to a level above God. This is why God ordered the execution of the Canaanites. Because despite warning after warning after warning, they refused to repent. They had an exalted eye. They shook their fist at God, deciding they didn't need him. God, therefore, would not let their evil continue unchallenged. But the Kenites, who were not followers of the Lord, they became followers of the Lord. And God blessed them and gave them a place amongst his people. See, the Kenites are just another group of people that experience God's mercy because they didn't resist the Lord. And so I ask you tonight, are you resisting the Lord in any way? Now, since Simeon helped Judah, it's Judah's turn to help Simeon. So back in Judges chapter 1, we move to verse 17. And we see here in verse 17, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it, and the name of the city was called Hormah. Now, Hormah is an interesting city because this is where the original Israeli advance stalled 65 years earlier. You remember the story? They're at Kadesh Barnea, and God said, all right, I want you to send spies into the land, go take the land. And so they sent spies into the land, and 10 spies came back with a bad report and swayed the hearts of the people, and the people said, we can't go up. Then God brought judgment upon the nation and said, listen, because you will not trust me, and you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until you're all dead, and then your kids who you said, I brought out here to kill, they'll take the land since you don't want it. They all heard that, and they said, wait a second. Well, you know, we'll we'll go take the land. And the Lord said, no, no, we're done. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. No, 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 we'll take the land. We'll do it now. And the Lord says, if you go up, I'm not with you. And they went up. They went up. And man, it was looking good at first. They stormed into Kadesh Barnea. They moved and advanced all the way until they got to Hormah. And Hormah was really a dug-in mountainous position. And they were turned back and they were chased all the way back out where they had to come 50 miles south of where their camp was. And a ton of people died. So it's interesting that where they were embarrassingly defeated then because it was a stronghold hard to take, they're victorious this time. Again, where does victory come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. When they went in without the Lord, they lost. When they go in with the Lord, they win. Now, this seems to be the only city in control of the Canaanites in Simeon's territory because now the fight turns toward Judah's land in the west, verse 18. Also, Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, the borders thereof, and Ashkelon with their borders thereof, and Ekron with the borders thereof. So not just the city, but the lands. They captured these three cities and all the lands that were there. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain. But Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. 
So this is the first time we see them come to a halt in all of their battles. The first time we don't see them experience a full and complete victory. Now, when it says they took Gaza, took Ashkelon, and they took Ekron, these were three of the five royal Philistine cities. These were all the ones that were in Judah's territory. The other two were in Dan's territory. And we'll get to this later in chapter 1. But Dan went and got their land, and they went in, and they saw the Philistines there, and they said, "Uh uh-uh, we can't fight these guys. And so they hung out in just the hilly region that they could defend for themselves. Never went on the offensive. Well, it was too many people there crammed into that hilly area. And so they said, this is too cramped for us. We're going to go find our own land. And that's where they went all the way up north to Laish and carved out their own land there. So Judah has to be commended because they went to these hardest uh, fights. They went to these hardest cities and they succeeded because the Lord was with Judah. They dispossessed them because the Lord was with them. But they could not completely drive them out. As you probably already guessed, the Philistines are not wiped out. They survive because they become a problem later on. Israel captures the royal cities, but they can't hold them. Why? Because the inhabitants of the valley, the Philistines that were in the valley there, they had chariots of iron. They could not use the chariots in their cities. Those were no good to them in the hilly regions where they built cities back then. But the flat coastal lands were the ideal environment for their chariots. They'd be able to hit and run in a way that would be extremely difficult for Israel to deal with and extremely difficult to wipe them out completely. But... Was it difficult for God? It wasn't difficult for God at all. He'd already dealt with Pharaoh's chariots in an unconventional way, dumped the Red Sea on them, right? He had dealt with the Northern Confederation's chariots where he had them buttoned up so close and so scared that they never got to use them on the flatlands. Israel had never lost to chariots before. So the only explanation here is that Judah decided it was too difficult. Not that God couldn't beat chariots. At some point, they decided it was too difficult. So while this is a very good start for Israel and a very good start for Judah, they do so many things well, this last part here is a failure. And it's one that comes back to haunt Israel big time. Because the Philistines become their greatest foe. And one could even argue it's still their greatest foe today. For the word Palestinian just means Philistine. That's what Palestine means, land of the Philistines. The word Palestine first originated when the Romans drove, took Israel, conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, drove Israel out, dispersed them all throughout their empire, and to spite the Jews, they called the land Israel, Palestine, land of the Philistines, because it was Israel's hated historical enemy. And that was the name it took on for a very long time. And so today, the Philistines are still a problem for Israel doesn't mean Philistines are evil. Jesus loves them and they need the Lord. It's not like Israel's in the land in faith. So it's not like they're intrinsically any better than the Palestinians. Both groups need Jesus, but you can see where the conflict is still there. Now, I would ask you, maybe you've done lots of things the Lord's asked you to do. But what's that one thing that God has commanded you in his word, but you won't trust him for What's the one thing? It doesn't matter how impossible it seems because the Lord is the Lord, right? He is the King of Kings. 
doesn't matter if it's iron chariots. doesn't matter if they're fighting you hit and run style in the valley. He is the Lord of lords. And if you don't trust him to overcome your iron chariots, then those very same chariots will enslave you later on. But if you move forward in faith, you will experience victory, even against impossible odds, just like Caleb did. Look at verse 20. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, just like Moses said, and he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Now, this is fascinating to me because we have two verses where we have two naturally difficult situations, iron chariots, giants, right? But are either of those difficulties supernaturally difficult? They're naturally difficult, right? Like if you just do the math and put it on paper and go, okay, how are we going to take care of iron chariots? Oh, we can't. They're just going to destroy us. You know, how are we going to take care of giants? How do you kill a giant? It's no coincidence that when Goliath comes onto the scene, that nobody fights him, all right? It's no coincidence. So how do we handle this in the natural? The answer is you can't. But are they supernaturally difficult? Not at all, because God is all-powerful. We're not, but he is. So what's the difference? Well, Judah decided the chariots were too difficult, and Caleb was filled with faith. You know, that's not a surprise to us. We already know that from the book of Joshua. But the New Testament confirms it too. In Hebrews 11.33, I'll just say it, it mentions that by faith they subdued kings. So we see throughout the story of Joshua, and we'll see in Judges, that there were those who overcame impossible circumstances. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Either you believe the Bible or you don't. Because if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe God's all-powerful, the Bible makes no sense. The whole story of Gideon makes absolutely no sense. We're going to go fight a group of thousands of people with 300 who've got lamps and swords and trumpets or whatever, you know? I can't remember if the VeggieTales was exactly correct. That's absurd. Honestly, it's absurd. If you don't believe that God is all-powerful and you don't believe the Bible is His Word, you shouldn't be a Christian because that's absurd. But when we're taking into account the supernatural involvement of an all-powerful God, what isn't possible? What isn't possible? Nothing's impossible. So it was by faith that they subdued kings. By faith, Caleb expelled those three giants, killed them, and took that city. And through unbelief, Judah never took care of those Philistines. Judah's other victories were accomplished by trusting God completely, but here they wavered. And so my challenge to you is don't waver. Be full of faith. Whatever the cost or whatever your fears, it's far better than the alternative because look at verse 21. This is what Judah's compromise brought about for the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. We don't know who wrote the book of Judges. The traditional author is Samuel. I tend to side with that. But we know that there's two things about whoever wrote this. There was a king now, but it was a new thing. And that the Jebusites were still in Jerusalem. And the Jebusites would not be conquered until David became king. So again, 350 years later, whoever's writing this says the Jebusites are still there. 
So for 350 years, the Jebusites were a thorn in Benjamin's side. Listen, don't let your trust in yourself create your own set of thorns. Don't do that. So anyway, so far the book is not too depressing, right? Israel's off to a very good start, but we do see that their obedience isn't complete. And Judah's disobedience, their compromise here, will become a stumbling block for the rest of the nation that's going to result in greater compromises the farther we move away from Joshua to the point where we will get to the next generation and it will declare, I believe in Judges chapter two, might be chapter three, where it says, and the next generation that grew up did not even know the Lord. They didn't even know who he was. So my encouragement to you is start well, continue well, and finish well. You say, Pastor Will, that's hard. (laughs) I'm weak. That's okay. Because the battle was never up to you. It was never up to them either. It's up to you to trust the Lord. He will be strong for you. So, Lord, I pray for us as we, we travel through this book that, you know, we will not just start well in our Christian lives, but we will continue well and we will finish well so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have run the race. I've finished my course. And now there's laid up for me that crown waiting for me. And not just me only but all those who love is appearing. So Lord, we want to look forward to that day when we, we see you and we receive those crowns. We want to persevere. We want to finish. So we choose, Lord, to, if we're new believers, we choose to start well. Lord, if we're not, we choose to continue well. And all of us, Lord, we make the decision today to finish well. Teach us how to do that, how to avoid the pitfalls that we'll see in the book of Judges. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.